Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Westminster Town Hall Forum. Originating from Westminster Presbyterian Church, located here in downtown Minneapolis. I am Donald Meisel, moderator of the forum and minister with my colleagues to and with this Center City congregation, an exciting place to serve. Today is one of eight in a new series of monthly forums. Each one will hone in in its own way on our overarching theme Voices of Conscience, Key Issues in Ethical Perspective. Our voice of conscience today is Maya Angelou, Reynolds Professor of American Studies at Wake Forest College in Wake Forest, North Carolina, a post she's held for some three years. She has been aptly called a Renaissance woman, that is, a gifted generalist who is also a specialist in several disciplines. She embodies in her person, her poetry, her speaking, her teaching, her singing, her stage and TV work, the realities, the needs, the plight, the hopes of minorities, women, artists, activists. She has written a number of books, both prose and poetry. There is a book and there is a poem bearing on the caged bird. The book, I Know Why the Caged Bird Sings, as pulled from the shelf in our home in South Minneapolis, has a note written in December of 71 by my then 14-year-old daughter to her grandmother. Allow me to read the note from the book. Dear Barbara, this is a beautifully written story that certainly touched me. It both gently and harshly made me open my eyes to the suffering of many people. I hope that it will move you and help you as it did me. Merry Christmas, Nancy. The poem, The Caged Bird, reflects the book and the person and concludes... The caged bird sings with a fearful trill of things unknown but longed for still. And his tune is heard on the distant hill, for the caged bird sings of freedom. I can only bear to read to you those few lines of the larger poem against the hope that our guest will speak the poem as only she is able to do. This past Wednesday afternoon, a, a number of us here at the church sat down and watched a tape, a videotape, of Ms. Angelou's Hour on Public TV about a year or more ago with Bill Moyers as part of his series on human creativity. Perhaps you saw it. We traveled with her on her journey home and inward to Stamps, Arkansas, where she spent many of her growing up years. It was a journey inward for everyone who watched and listened. That experience, as I've just told her sitting here, began to prepare me for this moment, which promises to be a very special moment for all of us, a very special early afternoon with Maya Angelou. Thank you. 
to see what the end is gonna be. We'll go. The Jamaican woman, a gold gourd of Africa and God, sat sing-songing to her little son. We're going to Jamaica on an airplane, on an airplane, on an airplane. And her tiny two-year-old was resting so lightly on her lap like a ruby red petal, sing-songing her voice back. We are going to Jamaica on an aeroplane, on an aeroplane, on an aeroplane. Some of us come here singing. It is the world that binds our beings otherwise. Otherwise, it is ecstasy to be here. It is ecstasy. And I thank you for your invitation. That poem was written by Carolyn Rogers, one of the great American poets, a black lady who poets out of Chicago. <laughs> this poem was written by County Cullen, a black male poet writing in the 30s. And it will lead me, and I hope bring you into my idea of the afternoon. This is a small poem called Incident. Once riding in old Baltimore, head filled, heart filled with glee, I saw a Baltimorean keep looking straight at me. Now I was eight and very small, and he was no whit bigger, and so I smiled. <laughs> But he stuck out his tongue and called me, Nigga! I saw the whole of Baltimore from May until December of all the things that happened there. That's all that I remember. Now, I wanted to talk to you and myself about what we choose to remember. It is possible to live a life full of memories that are rich in angst and sturm and drang, or it is possible to use those moments that we do, which we encounter, which are rich in sturm and angst and drang and pain and despair, to have something wonderful to grow out of those moments to use those moments, those years if necessary, as a fertilization for something positive, for something wondrous, for something healthy. I think that people live in direct relation to the heroes and sheroes they have. <laughs> I, I believe that the hero-shero is not necessarily a human being. A hero-shero can be an idea. I think the black American existence in this country is in itself a hero-shero. I think that every human being, every American can draw upon that existence for encouragement and charts to live their lives by. It must be remembered that the first Africans were brought to this country in 1619. 
Now, I don't mean to cast aspersions, but I will remind you that that was one year before the Mayflower docked. <laughs> it is sad to say that the Native American to whose continent we were brought, we were strangers in chains and slaves more so. It is sad to say the Native American are less than 600,000 in the entire United States. Black Americans are upwards of 30 million, and that is a conservative estimate. I know people who say that there are more than 30 million black people in the Baptist church. They're not even counting AME, AME Zion in the Muslim religion and Islam. They're not counting the black Jews and the backsliders, nor the back. <laughs> At some point, we are obliged to ask, how have these people survived? How indeed? And once we look beyond our particular ignorance, the barriers of ignorance which sometimes others have built around us and we condone, or we build around ourselves and narrow our lives down, once we can look beyond that, then one sees that the survival of these people must be an inspiration to all people. For Terence said in 154 BC, homo sum, Humani nihil ame alienum puto. I am a human being. Nothing human can be alien to me. It's an incredible concept, vast. I know I have spent my 35, okay, 40, all right, 50 years <laughs> trying, trying my best to encompass that vast idea. And it is nice to look at Terence and see in your encyclopedia, Terence with one R, beside his name in italics, there are the words Terentius Affer. He was an African, a slave, sold to a Roman senator. He was freed by that senator and became the most popular playwright in Rome. Six of his plays and that statement have come down to us from 154 B.C. This man, not born white, not born free, not born with any chance of citizenship, said, I am a human being. Nothing human can be alien to me. Now, when you really include and begin to internalize that idea, you, on one hand, must say, uh, if a person does the most heinous act, commits the most heinous crime, you can't say, oh, I could never do that. You can say, I intend never to do that. I mean to use my energies constructively as opposed to destructively. I shall, with the help of God and all my strength and, and all the goodwill of my fellows, never to do that. But you can't say, I could never do it. I mean, unless it was an elephant or an alligator or something who, which made, did the heinous crime. On the other hand, if you can internalize a part of that, it means that if a human being dreams a great dream, dares to paint a painting, a Matisse, a, a Romare Bearden, a Jake Lawrence, 
that will lift the whole spirit of the human being. If someone writes a great symphony, if Stevie Wonder sings a true song, then it means, of course, you can do it. If a human being dares to love someone and has the courage to accept love in return, it means that you can do it. So that is why I offer the survival of the black American as a, an indication of resource from which you can draw to, as my grandmother says, put some more starch in your backbone. <laughs> Straighten up a little bit. We have lived through incredible experiences, so bizarre that they could not be included in uh, Roots, for instance. So bizarre, so cruel. And yet, as Thomas Wolfe says, we spring from the dying loins of our ancestors, walking in the phrase of the blues as if we have oil wells in our backyards. <laughs> there is some instruction in that. Now, for centuries, black Americans were obliged to laugh when they weren't tickled and to scratch when they didn't itch. And those gestures have come down to us as Uncle Tom-ing, Aunt Jemima-ing, and so forth. I go back to remember, I choose to remember, that those men who did that shuffling, who said, yes, Savas, you're right, I show stupid, yes, sir, did so so that they could make enough money so they could go home and feed their families. And those black women who said, no, ma'am, Miss Ann, you didn't hurt me when you slapped me. I ain't tenderhearted, no, ma'am. <laughs> Did so so that they could go home and send someone to school. People live in direct relation to the heroes and sheroes they have. I've written a poem for a woman who is a maid in New York City. She sits on the 8th Avenue bus in the back of the bus with two large sh uh, shopping bags. If the bus stumbles, she says, ah! <laughs> if it picks up someone, she says, ah! <laughs> if it misses someone, <laughs> I watched her for months. I thought, if you don't know black features, you may think she's laughing. But if you know black features, you know she's simply extending her lips and making a sound. <laughs> Nothing was happening to her eyes. So I wrote a poem for her, and I use it with Mr. Paul Lawrence Dunbar's poem, Math. My poem is, when I think about myself, <laughs> I almost laugh myself to death. <laughs> My life has been one great big joke, a dance that's walked, a song that spoke. <laughs> I laugh so hard, I nearly choke when I think about myself. <laughs> Seventy years in these folks' world, the child I works for calls me girl. <laughs> I say, yes, ma'am, for working sake. I'm too proud to bend and too poor to break. So 
I laugh until my stomach aches when I think about myself. And my folks can make me split my side. <laughs> I laugh so hard I nearly die. The tales they tell, they sound just like lying. They grow the fruit but eat the rind. <laughs> I laugh <laughs> until I start to cry when I think about myself and my folks and the little children. <laughs> we wear the mask that grins and lies. It shades our cheeks and hides our eyes. This debt we pay to human guile. With torn and bleeding hearts, we smile and mouth with myriad subtleties. Why should the world be overwise in counting all our tears and sighs? Nay, let them only see us <laughs> while we wear the mask. We smile, but oh my God, our tears to thee from hurtful souls arise. And we sing, but oh, the clay is vile beneath our feet and long the mile. <laughs> Let the world think otherwise. <laughs> we wear the mask. <laughs> direct relation to the heroes and sheroes we have, we stay alive. We can choose to remember the gifts that have been given to us so generously by our own, that is, people in our families, people in our neighborhoods, in our genders, in our races. It is wise, it seems to me, to remember where one came from. That old saw is nonetheless true for being trite. He, she, who does not learn from his, her history is doomed to repeat it and repeat it and repeat it. It seems to me wise to think for me to think of Africa and the people who paid all those dues huddled spoon fashion in the filthy hatches of slave ships, it seems to me wise for friends of mine to remember England and Ireland and Germany and Asia. I include Japan, China, I include the Philippines. It seems wise to think, suppose I came face to face with a great-great-grandfather our great-great-grandmother, and she looked at me and said, so you are the one. You are the reason I took it all. You are the reason I stayed in Ellis Island for two years 
You are the reason I came on a ship steerage eating bread and water. You are the reason. You, your very self, you Margaret, you John, you Sam, you Tom, you Sally, you are it. You are the end result of all my wishing, all my dreaming. You are it. It's overwhelming. Do it. I encourage you to do it in the privacy of your car, your home, someplace. Just think about it. And how would you shape up? What would they think? Would they say, you're doing, you're, as the Jamaicans say, you're walking good? Would they say that? That to me, then, is where the conscience of human beings must be aptly and constantly exercised. E-R, exercised. Constantly. To remember how much has been given one and how much, consequently, one is obliged to give not just in the great, meaningful, and portentous, and profound uh, statements that one uh, gets from the back of books, or from the minister, or the rabbi, or the priest, or the imam, or the guru. No, I mean the little things, the sweet things. I know that humor is a very important part of surviving. And you know, I don't mean when I say survive, I don't just mean survive. I mean thrive. And I mean thrive with some passion, some compassion, some humor, and some style. That's what I mean. I don't mean base survival. So humor in the black community is very uh, accessible in the streets and in our homes and in our churches and in the schools and among lovers, agape lovers and erotic lovers. Uh, <clears throat> humor is very important. I, will, I know I have such a short time, I'm racing, so. The, um, I have a sister friend who is white. We have been sister friends for 30 years. We were young poor and mad together. If you have to be poor, of course it follows that you are mad, but then <laughs> uh, we had the, the nerve, unmitigated goal, to also be brilliant. <laughs> now, well, well, we were sure we were. No one else was. I'm, there is nothing. I've heard of that, the danger of mixing um, gasoline and alcohol. But I know that the most volatile mixture in the world is youth and, and arrogance. I mean, it is just, we were arrogant. Um, whenever we, she had a daughter, and I have a son, and whenever her daughter... Uh, needed her teeth fixed, my friend would come to me and I would lend her money, eight dollars, that tells you how long ago it was, to have an extraction or filling. 
And uh, her daughter had the softest teeth in California, I think. <laughs> and my son wears and wore glasses. And uh, he lost his glasses frequently, but it was as if the children got together. So on the month that her daughter had a bad tooth, my son never lost his glasses. It was the next month. And so I would have to go to her for money to get glasses for my son, which were $8. <laughs> uh, whenever either of us found Mr. Wright, the other would buy cheap red wine, and we had affectations. We'd say, darling, here's to you and yours. And whenever either of us lost Mr. Wright, the other would buy cheap red wine and say, he never deserved you. <laughs> so, we, we've developed a true sisterhood over these 30 years. She is now chairman of the Department of Anthropology at the New York University. And she called me about three years ago and said, girl, you should meet me and go down to the West Indies. There's a conference. It's going to be fantastic. And so I said, no. She said, the greatest thing is Elaine Thomas is going to speak. So I said, I don't know Elaine Thomas. She said, yes, you do. We met her out in the islands. And so I asked her, How, what does she look like? She said, she's short, stocky, about our age, which as the French say is a certain age. And she said, I asked her, is she black or white? She said, she's black. And then I asked her, what color is she? And there was this long pause. This, an anthropologist, if you know them, they talk. That is what they're known for. And my friend in particular. But she said, this tiny little voice came, And I realized if our lives depended upon it, my friend, my sister friend, could only say of me that I was black. She couldn't describe my color. Among black people, we range from plum blue to milk white. <laughs> well, well, so in a rather humorous vein, I will share with you some phrases. So the next time you, the white friends here and the black friends who have not used, some of the young black people don't, when you want to describe a black friend or possibly someone in your family, uh, be sure and use one of these phrases. And if you have no black friends, go out and make some immediately. <laughs> oh. Have you dug the spill of Sugar Hill? Cast your gems on this sepia thrill. Brown sugar lass, caramel treat, honey gold baby sweet enough to eat. Cream colored darling, chocolate, coffee and cream. Chocolate darling out of a dream. Plum tinted black, rich plum color, peach skin girl, feminine beauty is not Harlem's lack. From the glow of the quince to the blush of the rose. Persimmon, bronze, cinnamon toes, burgundy, licorice, Virginia Dale wine, all those sweet flavors color Harlem, walnut or cocoa, let me repeat, caramel, ginger, brown sugar, licorice, 
Burgundy, a Harlem treat. <laughs> if you want to know beauties, rainbow sweet thrill, come stroll with me down luscious, delicious, fine sugar hill. <laughs> If it hadn't happened before, I think we all have a new Shiro. <laughs> we will take a brief moment to allow those who must leave to do so, also to give you an opportunity to fill out a yellow card with your question. We'll deal with them as many as the uh, time will permit. This is. A moment also to uh, remind our radio audience that uh, they are listening to the Westminster Town Hall Forum originating from Westminster Presbyterian Church in downtown Minneapolis. I think we're going to move right along in this afternoon with Maya Angelou and uh, use as much time as we can uh, to uh, share questions with her that she might share more of herself with us. Um, I have a question or two just kind of ready to go so we don't waste any time. I know that you worked with Martin Luther King, and I wonder if you'd be willing to, you know, just think back with us, talk about remembering hmm. uh, about him. Uh, all the virtues that uh, are highlighted in the biographies of Dr. King, the essays and, and uh, articles of Dr. King, all the positives are true as far as I know them to be. There is one area which is often forgotten when people talk about Dr. King and Malcolm X, uh, and that is that they had great senses of humor. You see, I think it is dangerous when we make the hero Shiro larger than life because the young person coming along says, well, I could never be that. You understand? He's too big. He is non-human or a-human. Well, Dr. King was a very funny man. And I would tell a joke, if I may. Dr. King told this to me in the back of a car. We had been out raising money. And he said that uh, a black woman had worked for a white woman for a number of years, and they were, had both reached their late 70s. The black woman no longer actually worked, but she was in the house, and she would uh, uh, give out cups of coffee. Mm -hmm. And there was the Montgomery bus boycott taking place. 
So the black woman happened to be at the white woman's house when she had a number of white, or her friends in the living room. The, the employer called the black woman into the living room and asked, tell me, now, Betsy, I hope you're not having anything to do with this bus boycott. And the black woman said, no, ma'am. I am having nothing to do with that boycott. She said, you know where my son, he works for the gas company three miles from our house. I told my son, have nothing to do with that boycott. Walk every step of the way. She said her children walked. And so when the black woman went into the kitchen, the white woman's daughter asked her, she said, why do you treat my mother like that? You know she's wrong. Why don't you just come out and say she's wrong? And the black woman said, honey, when you have your head in a lion's mouth, you don't snatch it out. You reach up and you scratch him behind the ears just gingerly, and then you draw. <laughs> Thank you. The first question from the audience, who is your Shira? I have so many. I'm so blessed. Uh, some who are what James Weldon Johnson calls unnamed, unfamed, um, some famous ones, uh, men and women, black and white, who encourage me by their very existence. They have, the people who have enough courage to develop courage, because it is said that courage, now Plato said this, I wish I had, but I have to give it. He said that courage is the most important of all the virtues, because without courage, you can't practice any other virtue with consistency. Hmm. So uh, those people who have shown courage and love, Love. And by love, I don't mean mush. I don't mean sentimentality. I mean that condition in the human spirit so profound it allows us to build bridges and then trust those bridges in attempts to reach other human beings. Those people are my heroes and sheroes. Thank you. Another question from the floor. We all at times feel somewhat painfully our human isolation from the world. How do you find serenity and relief from the innumerable complexities of ordinary living? Oh, that's a lovely question. <laughs> and it happens about, well, what time is it? Everything. <laughs> it is my blessing to be uh, religious. It is my blessing that I am trying to be a Christian. Now, trying to be a Christian to me is like trying to be a good Jew, a good Muslim, a good friend, a good parent, a good lover. It's not something you achieve and then you say, I got that. <laughs> you know, you start every morning, all, I mean, all day long you try and blow it and then in the evening you say, wow, I only blew it about 93 times. That's not bad. And then you forgive yourself and ask, ask God for the ability to forgive yourself and then start all over the next morning trying to be it. So because I'm trying to be a Christian, 
I am grateful for the constant presence of God. In my isolation, there is no place that God is not. And I am completely surrounded in and through. And that gives me serenity. As you are feeding us, let me just pause a moment and thank International Malta Foods Corporation for helping to bring you to town. And let me... <laughs> Would you say something about what poetry has meant and does mean to you? You've shared it live with us in, in a very moving way, but perhaps you'd philosophize with us a little bit about poetry. Um... I have listened since my early youth to the black ministers, the black church, the singing and the prose, the music, poetry and prose, and I have internalized that poetry. For a number of years, from the time I was seven and a half until I was twelve and a half, I didn't talk. I was what is called a volunteer mute. I couldn't speak. And I listened and read. And I loved James Weldon Johnson and Paul Lawrence Dunbar and Count T. Cullen and Langston Hughes. And I loved Shakespeare and Poe. I loved Edgar Allan Poe so much that to myself I called him Eat. <laughs> I just loved it. And I must tell this, some years ago, when I guess, when I started talking, I was almost 13, and in the black church, in the South in particular, children are asked to, quote, render rendition. They're just a little bit bigger than Christian Richard. Then they are supposed to get up and say, what you looking at me for? I wouldn't come to stay. I just come to tell you, it's... And then some kind old sister, old deacon will say, Christmas, honey. It's Christmas Day. And then when you walk off the stage, the old people say, didn't he do nicely? Bless that child's heart, so dear. Well, I had arranged, I had fallen in love with Portia's speech from the Merchant of Venice. In my head, I never heard it spoken, but I decided, I'm talking now, after years of people saying, it's a shame Sister Henderson's California granddaughter is gone mental. <laughs> you know, suddenly I'm speaking. So I decided I was going to get up and say, the quality of mercy is not strained. It dropeth as the gentle rain. Oh, I had it all choreographed. But then I, I told Mama, I said, Mama, I have chosen my rendition. And she asked me, what are you going to render? So I said, I was going to render a piece from Shakespeare. My grandmother asked me, now, sister, who is this very Shakespeare? I had to tell her he was white. Now, in Arkansas, in those years, my mama thought the less you said about whites, the better. 
just don't mention them, and they may just go on away, you So I thought, ah, I will tell her that he's dead. <laughs> and that he's been dead for centuries, and then she will forgive him this little idiosyncrasy of her. She would not, and did not, and said, Sister, we have the poets, Mr. James Weldon Johnson, Mr. County Cullen, Mr. Langston Hughes, uh, you will recite from Mr. Paul Lawrence Dunbar. Yes, ma'am, you will. And so that's what I did. But all my life, I have used Shakespeare. I will use Arlington, John Donne. I will use Robrier. I will use Chekhov, Tolstoy, Gorky. I will use them all. For I understand that they wrote for me. And that is the burden of my song this afternoon to you. It is all for you. It is to encourage us all to be more, more, bigger, kinder, more merciful, more intelligent, more generous, more courageous. It is all for all of us. So that's the most I can say about poetry. Is it true that you said of Shakespeare, I couldn't believe that a white man could write so musically? Yes. <laughs> well, actually, I thought that it was Poe who really, I thought he, was, he must have been passing. <laughs> oh, Poe had it. I mean, if you listen to the, to the rhythm, and, um, and the silken, sad, uncertain rustling of the purple curtain thrilled me, filled me with fantastic terror never felt before, so that now to still the beating of my heart I stood repeating till some visitor entreating entrance at my chamber door. Some late visitor, I mean, really. You know he was passing. A heavy question. Which has been more difficult, being a woman or being black? Oh, that's an unfortunate question, because it's one that can't be answered. I, I am a black woman, or I'm a woman black, I don't know. It is my, my community, the larger community, the white community, which makes me recognize that it, it is being black that is the first thing, because to the white community, that is the most important and negative thing. Or with men, it is being female that is the most important thing. For that is the worst or the best thing. I, it is an impossible question. I'm sorry. Thank you. What were your feelings about Jesse Jackson's candidacy? Yay! <laughs> Mr. Jackson, Reverend Jackson, is just one of the greatest hopes in our country. I believe that for us all. That a number of whites would not vote for Mr. Jackson and even a number of blacks spoke more to the paucity of courage and to the blithering uh, ignorance which has afflicted us. Because a number of people 
had he been just a few shades lighter and passed for dark Italian, people would have voted. <laughs> just a few shades. It had nothing to do with his being black inside himself. It had to do with his skin color. And that is really tragic. It speaks about us, something sad. And we will have to, you know, get beyond that. We are obliged to. If we are ever to make this country more than it is today, more than what James Baldwin calls these yet to be United States. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I know you had an important role in the TV series on Roots. Would you like to reflect on that a little bit and what mm -hmm. that meant? Yes. Uh, Alex Haley is a friend and brother, and he and the producers had, had no idea that Roots was going to become this great phenomenon. So uh, they asked me and uh, Cecily Tyson, O.J. Simpson, uh, Thalmas Rusalala, uh, all sorts of people to be in the first one. Really not because, well certainly I wasn't because I was a great actress, mm -hmm. but I wanted to have the right to I wanted to be asked to direct a couple of those segments. Since I'm the first black female director in Hollywood, I wanted to have that on my resume. <laughs> uh, so I believe that they honestly did consider me. They did go to the American Film Institute and, and uh, ask for some of the films I had directed. Uh, but as they continued shooting, they got to a place where they were pressed for time and money. And uh, so they got a, a director who had more expertise. And I'm very glad they did because I, I know nothing about moving 60 large pieces of, of uh, instruments and 100 extras and all that before 7 o'clock in the morning. And the worst thing that could be said for me on my resume would be that I blew roots. You know, that I, that I, I messed up roots. And so, so I'm very glad that it didn't. A curious thing has happened, though, right after. I have been writing for years. My books, one or another of my books, are required reading. My books are required reading in every university or college in this country. Uh, children, young people take themes from my books as their mottos for the year, for their semester, and so forth. Uh, after I did those five minutes in Roots, people would stop me in the street and say, you're a great actress, what do you do all the time? Which shows you the power of television. I mean, suddenly I was a real human being because I had been on television. Please. I can't but recall, just as we walked in here at noon, that a, a young woman, uh, late teens, early 20s, from stopped Poland. you from Poland yes. and said that reading your poetry was her first experience of American literature and what it meant to her yes. in the context of her living. Yes. It was a she feels herself encaged, as we all are, you know. Um, it is true, until we are all free, we are all encaged to lesser or greater degrees. And because of her particular situation, political situation, 
she saw um, herself and me as one. And there are few compliments greater. Few. I don't know any. Another question. Could you tell us a bit about your love for dance? (sighs) (laughs) (laughs) That's it. Uh, I danced. I started studying dance when I was 13, I guess. 13 and a half. One of my problems of coming from a mute history, a history of muteness, um, I had the good fortune to find a teacher early on. I was six foot by the time I was four, 14 and a half. And believe it or not, extremely skinny. Those were wonderful memories for me. <laughs> but uh, I had a wonderful teacher who, who taught me to consider space as something to occupy. So I could put myself into space. And that, that was wonderful for me. It, it helped me to, to be sure of my own self, the person in uh, the body in which I lived. Um, once a dancer, always a dancer. The West Africans have a phrase I love, and it is, the same thing that makes the flea jump is in the turtle. And so no matter how old or large or fat or tired I am, I still see dance. I still dance inside. Dance and and writing, particularly, have been my mainstays. I quoted a small portion of your poem, Caged Bird, and uh, was uh, hoping to tempt you to to share more of it with us. Is there a chance for that? Or? Yes, but I'll tell you what I'd rather do. I'd rather read the poem Sympathy by Paul Lawrence Dunbar, from which I took the title. And uh, Mr. Dunbar wrote this poem about 1896, and I had the temerity to rewrite it. Well, no, it wasn't really rewriting, but I wrote another version. But let me read you the original. And Paul Lawrence Dunbar, make a note, please. Please go to the library, read his work. Try. We live in direct relation to the heroes and sheroes we have. Mr. Dunbar was one of the great American poets. And very few people who do not teach and are not black know his poetry. Here he is. I know what the caged bird feels alive when the sun is bright on the upland slopes when the wind stirs soft through the springing grass and the river flows like a stream of glass when the first bird sings and the first bud opes and the faint perfume from its chalice steals I know what the caged bird feels I know why the caged bird beats his wing till its blood is red on the cruel bars. I know why the caged bird sings, ah me, when his wing is bruised and his bosom sore. He beats his bars and would be free. It is not a carol of joy or glee, but a prayer that he sends from his heart's deep core, but a plea 
Upward to heaven he flings. I know why the caged bird sings. Mr. Paul Lawrence Dunbar. There are another number of expressions here that before the time together is over, would you be willing to share a spiritual with us? Hmm. Hmm. Uh, yes. <laughs> I must tell you, however, that Ollie Harrington, one of the fine cartoonists, in the 40s and 50s, a black cartoonist with the Chicago Defender, had a cartoon once in which there were about 14 men, white, 13 white men, one black man, all about 60 years old, all very well-dressed, obviously uh, por uh, important, portly members of the community. <laughs> and the white man who was the head of the corporation and at the head of the table said, Dr. Johnson, before you give us your Nobel Prize winning paper on thermonuclear propulsion, would you sing a good old spiritual? <laughs> <laughs> it has to be said. <laughs> mm. However, I will sing a spiritual. There, uh, this is my grandmother's song, a song she sang every Sunday of my life from the time I was three until I was 13. She'd sit in the mother of the church pew every Sunday. The minister would say, and now we'll be gifted by a song by Sister Henderson. And every Sunday my grandmother would go, me. <laughs> and I would sit in the children's pew and just die. Because the kids would, I mean, she did it every Sunday, so the kids would go, there goes your grandma doing it again. Your grandma doing it again. But finally she would stand and sing. I am a soul pilgrim of sorrow. I'm lost in this wide world alone. No have I thought tomorrow I've started to make heaven my home All right. Thank you end of this program, a group of children wish to make a presentation to you after we go off the air, but I'd like the people on the air to know that this is going to happen, the Minneapolis Urban League Academy, and they wish to present you with an award, po the Positive Image Award. <laughs> How's that? like to pose to you in light of their coming imminently and, and your being a teacher and uh, the fact that you've spoken to many uh, children in many settings, 
What What would you say to them about their future? Oh, well, first I will encourage you to read. 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 Put it in the computer. Put the data into that brain. In time, it will be of use. All knowledge is spendable currency depending upon the market. Put it into the computer. By all means, read. Catholic read. Read. Just put, pull Thomas Wolfe off the shelf. Pull Virginia Woolf off the shelf. <laughs> pull Tony Morrison off the shelf. Pull Tony Cade Bambara off the shelf. Pull Ro Rosa Guy off the shelf. Read Guy de Maupassant. Read. Just read. Take it all in. It is all for you. By all means, read. I have one last thing, if I may. Miss Marie Evans. One of the great poets of this country, I'm obliged to say this little piece of her poem. I am a black woman. The music of my song, some sweet arpeggio of tears is sung, can be heard in the minor key. Is written in the minor key. And you can hear me humming in the night. I am a black woman, tall as a cypress. Strong beyond all definition, defying place and time and circumstance, assailed, impervious, indestructible. Look upon me, and I mean upon yourselves, and be renewed. <laughs> to flourish, everyone must be touched by someone. You put starch in our backbones today. <laughs>